<laughs> so we'd have to wait for her to take for architecture, humor, you know, all these different categories that she would want to enter or select in the fair, and she could really get nothing for it. But I did learn a lot by hearing her talk about what she was looking for and what made a good composition and things like that. So anyway, I've gone through different cameras. We lost one on a trip that I really liked, and it was more manual. And then I started getting a DSLR, but it's too complicated. And Phones took over everything, and so it's like I don't even know where to go right now. But I love doing it, and there's so many fun things you can do, like with pixar art and all that. So that's where I'm going. Great, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, so there are so many options, and the camera. I mean, you know, the camera you have on your phone is a phenomenal camera in most cases. Um, I still love my my larger ones just for the lenses, but it's tough. And the things I'll be talking about today really aren't affected by the technology that you're using. Uh, you know, I, when you get into teaching photography, there are so many different types of systems and lenses and you know, even the software to edit, and it just goes so deep so fast. And in an hour and a half, you know, I really just want to cover some broad things that would be the most helpful that I can. Um, I will announce, too, that you know, it was going to be time depending, but I was going to have a bit of a Q&A at the end. Uh, we may not have time for that, but I will be around and I am happy to, uh, I am happy to answer questions uh, after this session or anytime. This is my only, uh, you know, time to talk. So any of the other times, the mornings or whatever, I'll be around. So I'm just waiting on this, Kayla, for the clicker. Then, anyone else want to share their uh, interest, engagement in photography? Yeah. Yes. Hi, I'm Harry. Hi, Harry. My current project, um, I'm working on a photo book that will document refugees. Wow. So I went to refugee camps in Greece. I was at the Polish border during the Ukraine invasion. Um, I was just in Lebanon working with Syrian refugees. Wow. So I've been taking teams overseas. I actually took a high school team of students to Coming off of it, we're taking pictures, and 
My friend said, this would be great for a book cover. I said, yeah, it would. <laughs> so I'm going from here. <laughs> I missed the mist too. It's actually one of the things that's one of my favorite subjects to photograph here. It's a tough one though, because there's not always a subject. It's just kind of a blur. Yeah. Anyone else? Great background for a book But it would make a great background. I can see the text right across the top of it. Anyone else? That's challenging. People, you know, people talk about, oh, landscapes are, are so hard. You know, you got to find the right time of day. And like, people, shooting people is so hard. It's so hard to capture the essence of a person. Uh, because you are telling a story by your angle and by your depth and by the color. And it's your, it's your view of them, which is tough sometimes. And yeah, yeah. So I really respect, uh, you know, portrait photographers. Let's jump in just to make sure we catch up. Uh, with our timeline. So goals for today, not really knowing that the breadth of skill sets that would be here today, what I really want to do is just give you some encouragement, starting with just having you uh, understand that the process is the process and help you accept some of that. There are pros and cons, there are challenges, there are great things about it. Um, so I want to talk about the process a little bit, or at least my process. I think every photographer kind of pioneers their own version of what I'm going to talk about. And then uh, a little bit today, we'll be talking about the thing that all creatives deal with, and that's just navigating fears and errors and managing some of the negative emotions that come with being a creative or doing creative work. Uh, I think we should talk about that some. I want to share a little bit about developing creativity and uh, what that looks like for me specifically. Um, you know, creativity could be as broad as you know whatever you want it to be. I think there's some steps I take that at least help me make it a repeatable process because I'm looking for repeatable results. Even though I don't necessarily, this isn't a business for me, I want to develop consistency that requires consistent steps. And then finally, I don't want our faith to be a veneer that we wrap around our work. I think it needs to be the heart and soul of it. Thank you, Kayla. Mm -hmm. And so I want to just talk about that briefly, um, time permitting. And then like I said, uh, there was uh, some desire to have a Q&A just to get some questions and answers. Uh, we may or may not have time for that. I'll stick around, obviously, and uh, we have the whole weekend. So. Um, for those of you who are very detailed in your thinking, I want to provide a broad overview. I, I, when I say broad, I mean broad. So when I say 15 minutes, uh, if it starts to be 17 or 12, don't, don't, uh, don't raise your hand just yet. It's broad, okay? But um, I want to give you a little bit about my backstory and creative timeline and history. I think we all come from someplace, and I think that's uh, relevant to the work that we do. I think if you look at what interests me, if you look at my background, you'll see why it interests me. I think you all have a sense of that. Um, and then making the invisible visible. I'll be talking a little bit about photographic processes, and I'm talking analog. I'm talking developing film. But I think there's a corollary to our own personal lives that I thought was interesting as I was working on this that I want you to see. We'll be talking about my process for awesomeness. That's a little bit overselling it, but <laughs> it is a talk. And then uh, five key photography concepts, either ones that I use the most, and therefore, I mean, there's, there are dozens of these, right? You all know them, especially if you're taking classes in, you know, university about these. But 
Again, these are the ones that I use the most for my landscape. They may have slides to portraiture, but I love them. I want to talk about artist worship, and, um, and then, like I said, wrap up with takeaways, maybe a Q&A if we have some time. That is our overview, but let's jump in. Personal and creative timeline. We all come from some place. And for me, I remember as a probably junior high, that first time I sat down, and I don't remember what the project was, but I started drawing. And I woke from a reverie hours later, drawing. And that moment, that slippage of time, became something that I loved pursuing. Like I'm an introvert by nature, so that alone time was healing for me and restorative um, after a crazy day with two brothers in a crazy world. So I would find respite, and Eric mentioned this too, that he, he had you know, respected, admired, and kind of longed to have that skill. I don't know that I had a skill, um, but this is you know, what I was doing. And um, I, you know, like that top one, you can't read it. it. It says, if you help me get down from here, I'll help you get well. I think I was drawing one day that I was sick, and I had seen Star Wars or something related to Star Wars. The point is, is that I filled hours doing just creative, I would say nothing, but it wasn't nothing. It was, my brain was going somewhere else and then coming back from it later. And I fell in love with that. And so that has been endemic my whole life. And uh, this is a bit of a progression of me holding and having cameras, um, starting, and you'll see in my timeline with, you know, just doodling, sketching. In high school, I took mechanical drawing where it became very formulaic and rigid and regimented and we had to do the perfect lettering and if you know your R wasn't perfect, the instructor crossed it out. And there was a repetition to building perfectionism in your, your craftsmanship that has carried through. And um, you know we don't necessarily always do that ourselves. Sometimes it takes an instructor or someone outside the system to push you. I'm going to keep bringing that up with you guys in terms of developing your craft does require help from outside. But um, let's see if this thing works. This is me at my desk in Hume. Over in the activities building now, in the Marcon building, I shared this off with Norm Daniels, who's one of the painters, and you'll get a chance to hear from him. Um, a little bit of foreshadowing, I have a calendar on my quasi-wall here. It's a landscape photography calendar. I have always been passionately in love with landscapes. Um, it's only in the last three, really three to five years that I've realized the, the depth of that. You know, because there was just something pretty on the wall for a lot of years. But I could have had anything. I had landscapes. So mechanical drawing, I mentioned that. Um, I became an art and architecture major in college. I thought, you know, I was strong in science. I love to draw. What's better than math and architecture? Two and a half years in, I realized that was the wrong decision. But I will tell you that built in me uh, the skills that I have used today. And it kept me in a world of art because I'm in a building where people are doing charcoal and sculpture and you name it, they were doing it. So this has always been in me, um, whether it was professional or just for fun, kind of a side passion project that just ebbed and flowed through the years. But it's just something that's always been there. And then you can see a big transition. I'm not sure what this was about, but this was just to get a degree. Uh, a very different uh, blip. Uh, the reason why I actually put that is because God allows blips on what we would prefer to be a perfect line. And he has actually built some of these blips into our lives to do something with us that we wouldn't choose otherwise. And I want you to know that that's okay. And whether that's a blip in your art, whether that's a blip in your life, it's okay. 
And um, what actually I have found without going too deep is that God used this blip to give me a job at Hume Lake that I couldn't have gotten otherwise. And the long story short of that is that um, I went to university, obviously for art and architecture, and I was learning the programs of art and architecture, and I was learning layout and design theory, and I was learning all these things, and uh, it was a process of disenchantment. The longer I was there, the more I realized it wasn't a good fit for me. I didn't know what else to do because I had gone there just for architecture. And in fact, at University of Oregon, where I went, if you left the School of Architecture, you actually had to reapply to the school. The School of Architecture was its own thing. And I didn't know what to do. So I walked through a year of journalism because it felt right, and I loved learning the principles of layout design uh, that I was, had taken from art and architecture and put on the page now, and thinking about how a person accesses the page. That didn't feel right, so after a year of that, I said, I just need a degree. I love reading and let's do English Lit. But English Lit taught me how to think and write and write on paper and communicate. So that became really important because in my summers, I was enjoying just being a summer dishwasher right over here at the Hall and loving it, having the best time of my life. And what happened was at the end of, um, I graduated, I was up here, I had been doing outdoor ed, Jeff Lilly came to me and uh, he said, you know, I, um, I want to give you a job, and I, uh, I think you'd be a good graphic designer for Hume Lake. And I said, well, Jeff, there's no graphic designer anywhere in here. I have no formal training. And he said, well, I hear that, but uh, I think you're the right fit for, for the job. And I said, well, well, what do you mean? What do you need? And he said, well, I just I need someone who knows the programs of layout design. I need someone who knows how to you know, lay something out so that people get it. I actually need someone who can also write for us, because we don't have a writer. And when you look at the things that I had walked through, they became the sum total of exactly what he needed at that moment. And that's why that blip is so important, because this is a really important component that some other designers didn't have, but he needed at the time. So having walked through that was important. Now, in my timeline, this, so this is when I became a full-time design, full designer at Hume Lake. You're going to start seeing names show up next to things that I've done. God has put people in my life to teach me the skills that I've needed every step of the way. So for me, I didn't have any formal training in graphic design. There was this man down the hill, John Dick. He was he works for one of the printers that he used for time. I'm driving on my projects, my print projects, the brochures that we're making for the camp down. And um, he took me aside one time and said, Josh, I need to be honest with you. We love you. You're doing great. But your files are a mess. They're terrible. Our, our, you know, our people are having to spend an extra hour or two to clean up what you're not doing right. Can I sit you down and show you some things that will speed up things for everyone? Yes, of course, please teach me. So John and some of his staff began to teach me how to make better files, so I became a better graphic designer. Okay. Um, along the way, as I was creating brochures for Hume Lake, I realized that, and I'm trying to sell this moment to pastors and parents, that iconic, I mean, you know, you guys all see the red videos, right? That's so impressive, and the enthusiasm and the smile. The smiles are what's selling camp in a lot of ways. I wanted to capture a little bit of the depth of camp, too. For me, that was your, you know, Friday evening, you know, camp that I went to a pine cone ceremony or come to Jesus, whatever. But I wanted to capture this moment. Now, remember, at this time, I had a film camera. I'm shooting slides or negatives, and then having to drive them down the hill wait three or four days to get them developed, bring them back up and kind of look at them in the light to see, you know, did I get what I wanted? Learning night photography 
was darn near impossible for me. It took me months. I would actually probably say multiple summers because I was just shooting, and then I get it back and be like, well, oh, what did I do? So I actually had to, I, I was sitting there with a tripod behind all these kids trying not to make noises in the forest, and I had a little notebook and a little light, and I'd take a picture and I'd write down the settings, and I'd take a picture and I'd write down the settings, and I'd take a picture and I'd write down the split for months. Because what happened was I'd drop that roll of film off and not get it back for two weeks. And I couldn't remember what I did. So I had to begin comparing each of these things to figure out, to reverse engineer what works at nighttime with people who are moving and a fire. And anyway, uh, so, so the challenge that presented itself became the catalyst for me really learning my skills. So it's important for us as creatives to realize that roadblocks are sometimes there for us to overcome. Not to, not to think we have to stop, right? We have to push ourselves past some of those roadblocks. Now, for me, I had to do this to get better brochures. So, you know, sometimes if we're in a thing, a situation where this is just a passion project and we're just kind of like doing it, you may be tempted not to push past that roadblock. But on the other side of that roadblock, it'll be something that's truly amazing. That's what I found in my life. So, at Hume, I stuck around for a while, which means I moved up the food chain, which means they gave me more responsibility, which means I needed more help. Jeff Lilly is at the top of this because he gave me the job and weekly encouraged me with his belief in me that I could do it. That was critical to me as a creative because, again, I came from not having this as a major, and I had my own self-doubts and concerns. I also loved working with Jeff, and so it was a great relationship. Dwayne Johnson was a engineer on the Hill. And uh, he took me aside, and he had developed technical equipment for NASA as an engineer. And he also loved photography. And he saw this photographic you know, process and the science of that as fascinating for his brain. So he would teach me that the camera skills, not the concepts, but like your settings and your apertures and your shutter speeds, that he invested in me. And uh, I had, you know, he, he lives down the hill now, and so we had lunch maybe six or seven weeks a day together, he's still in my life, an amazing man. It wasn't really, though, until the 2000s when photography kind of became a thing that I was really willing to admit I had a passion for, not just something that I did on the side. And um, I was still at Hume in these years, but I didn't really, really know what I was doing. Like I said, I had people who were speaking to me, so I um, heard a man named Paul Mullins who lives on the hill. He is a commercial photographer. And he also does a lot of landscapes. He always had a calendar that he put up that he loved, that I loved. So I just called him, and um, he gave me a couple hours of time showing me how to edit my photos inside the computer, showing me Photoshop and his process for editing and what he's looking for and how he did that. He invested heavily in me. You'll see his name come back around again and again. And then uh, creative direction, I took over um, at a different business. And uh, along the way, this was down, down the hill, uh, and professional, a different professional job. Um, Paul Mullins created a Christian photography group in Fresno, and I joined that. And we started doing annual photo trips, at least one big one to the Eastern Sierras every year. So again, Paul Mullins speaking into a group of people, speaking into me. It was this community that helped upcycle some of my skills, because now I'm with four, five, six, sometimes 10, 11, 12 photographers. They all have different interests. One of them is a burger. One of them is a night photographer. One of them's a landscape. I mean, and then some of them are just black and white. And what's fun about that is we we all are so encouraging, and, and there's not a competition kind of a thing. So we're really kind of there to encourage each other. 
and uh, it may be a different style that I don't love, but we're able to speak to each other in love and say, maybe change this and maybe fix this and maybe cut this out a little bit. And we're upcycling each other's art in the community. And that's amazing. And they have such a passion for the Lord that they see him in everything, a bird, a nice sky, a landscape. Uh, around uh, 2016, my wife and I started an agency. And um, the point in telling you that is just to say that I'm still surrounded by creatives. This is still in my working vernacular every day. It's in my blood, and I've kept it there professionally. As photography on the side has been something that I've invested in personally, right? This is just something that I do. And um, to that end, alongside the larger groups, or the small group, I mean, I've been joining Facebook communities who, you know, with thousands of people who are doing the same things that my small group is doing. Maybe if you crop this in a little bit, maybe you do tweak the color a little bit. So I am finding help to improve my craft everywhere I can, and that's the point. Um, I think, and you'll see this, I'll say this again and again, but you know, art exists in solitude, but I think it excels in community. And that's what I have found in my personal career is allowing other people in and inviting that critique and criticism, which I this again and again, is what's pushing me when I don't know where to go next. I need someone from the outside to help. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, 2022, I decided to kind of go full-time with photography, landscape photography as a business for myself. It's not my main job, it's another job. Uh, so I don't have 40 hours a week to give to it, but I decided to just commit and actually invest more in a website and a sales platform and, you know, and making things like calendars and really putting myself out there in a way that I hadn't before. Because that's scary, and it's scary for all of us. And, um, and that's where, you know, I've actually gotten um, some really nice responses to that. And that's always pleasing me because sometimes you put something out there and I'm aware of the 10 guys who do this better. And that's a struggle for me because I'm thinking, why would someone love my photograph when I could point you towards 10 other people who have a better version of it? But um, again, I have to see myself in beta. I'm developing myself. I'm not the final version of who I'm supposed to be. So I have to go through this moment to get to where I want to go. And that's a part of our art everywhere. I love this quote. Uh, it's an encouragement to me every time. It says, unbelief says, let's go back where it's safe, right? It's faith that says, let's go forward where God's working. And that's been an encouragement to me because forward is a nice concept, but forward to where God is working is the thing that makes that make sense to me. So making the invisible visible. We talked of the, 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 the you know, talk for today is uh, developing a really latent image. Uh, latent is a kind of a scientific term. I don't expect everyone to know it, but really it is, you know, not yet developed or manifest, uh, hidden or concealed. It's a photographic term. And it means, you know, when you press that uh, image through the negative on the paper with light, the image was actually on the paper couldn't see it until you inserted it into the developer and you went through that process that we're going to talk through right now. But the image was on the paper. You just couldn't see it yet. There's something in each of you, something in each of us that's there. And the process of developing your craft is going to bring that to light so other people can see it and share it as well. But that's why I love this concept of latency. So let's just talk about the photographic process for a second. Now this is analog, right? This is you know, slides, this is uh, old school, this is, you can sometimes get this, but not really. Uh, to expose an image, you have to push light through your negative, right? So that idea of pushing light through something, 
I think there's a, a really neat correlation for us as Christians in terms of what, what are we to be focusing on? What are we to reflect? What should the world see from us, right? Well, God's put that in us, that light, and that's uh, important. And, um, you know, Ephesians 4, 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. What if that was our mantra? Only what came out of our mouths or out of our work was there to build other people up. I think you've already heard some of the, I mean, Eric's talked about this, and some of the other seminar leaders are talking about, you know, what is our craft to be? What are we using it for? Uh, this is one of those examples. The next step, chemical exposure, introduction to reactive chemicals to develop the image that's already sitting exposed in the fibers, right? Uh, this is not always an easy or a fun or a great process. You think of toxicity and chemicals, right? For us as believers, though, we're called to endure change, and that we're actually to count it all joy when we meet trials of, of all types because we know that God is producing something in us that can't be revealed in us outside of this toxic or challenging or frustrating or unhappy process, right? And I count it all joy as the hard part uh, because we're going to go through it whether we want to or not, if that's what God has for us. But um, this changes a little bit of our focus. And... Um, the importance of steadfastness, even in the midst of, of obstacles, is important, especially for creatives. Well, now you've gone through a hard time. What are you going to do? How about sitting in the dark? Okay, it, not talking about rest. We're talking about being sidelined, maybe, right? Just having this, having to not do anything for a while, because developing a photograph is an instantaneous process, right? It takes time and precision and patience. And the frustration with this analog process is. You could, if there's 10 steps, you could do nine of them perfectly and be, get one wrong, the picture doesn't come out the way you want. And that's frustrating, right? That, that's, you know, it's, it feels like a waste sometimes. Um, and, you know, it's not until the final step that you get to figure it out. So you've invested a lot of time and effort and sometimes money. Um, but for us, the importance of sitting is really that we have a chance to wait on the Lord. And the challenge here is not just enduring the time. The challenge here is where your focus is, because when you're waiting, you should be waiting with a focus on what is God doing in this moment, as opposed to just going to hang out. Uh, our eyes are to be on him. And I say that as a way of encouragement, meaning when we put our eyes on him, he is able to usher us through this season, right? In a different way than if we just endured it. The next is finally a cleansing rinse, right? So we have all this chemical that's on the paper. It's been sitting a little bit. Let's wash it off and let's soak in restorative water and remove some of that excess developer. And the fun thing that we all know as believers um, is how dependent we are on Christ having washed away our sins. I heard one pastor talk about though that so often we think this is a one time. Hey, I became a believer at such and such a time and that's when he washed my sins away. Um, but we are asked and told to continue to confess our sins. And there's a, rep rep like a repetitious kind of a part of our asking God to cleanse us, even though he has fully cleansed us at the beginning, that, um, that I find you know, helpful because I need it. I need that constant refreshing and cleansing water myself. And, and then again, um, as opposed to setting in the dark, we have dry time. And, you know, this is where you've seen those pictures where they're hanging all these pictures in the dark room. And they're still in the dark room because if light were to enter that arena, it would destroy the picture. It needs to sit and dry. And the edges curl a little bit, but that is the picture getting fixed into the paper. And um, 
in the same way that we're told to fix God's words in our hearts and our minds, and we are told to uh, fix our thoughts and our eyes on him. And that, that burns that image into us in a way that um, then the best part is lets us begin to share that with others. You know, it's not until the picture has been fixed like this and all of these steps that can then be shared, handled, taken outside the dark room. It's ready to be seen by the rest of the world. So uh, for a, a couple of these chapters where I have a lot going on, I'm providing kind of summaries for you guys. Um, and that's just to kind of bring it home a little bit. But again, exposure to light, read and memorize our scripture, reflect wholesomeness in our words and our deeds. Chemical bath, we are to ensure, endure hardships and count trials as a joy. Not fun or easy, but we know what they produce. And sitting in the dark, we are to wait patiently and without worry. Sometimes that without worry is the, the catch, right? Um, because that time feels empty and we fill it with our own concerns. Um, that's tough. Cleansing, rinse, confess our sins, and also accept forgiveness. And then finally, dry time. Fix our eyes and our hearts on him. Solidify that faith so that others can see it. Take out of the dark room of your life. So I want to pause and give you just a moment of reflective time. We don't need you to say these things out loud. But if this is the process that God, you know, that we take to um, develop a photograph, to um, reveal what's there. What's God put in you that needs revealing? I think this is a, a, a question you can wrestle with and ponder and, and bring back to your forefront of your brain this whole weekend. This weekend is a wonderful, purposeful pause from the busyness of your normal lives to allow God to speak into you in a way that maybe he can't because of the busyness of what we all have to do in the day-to-day. -day. So I want you to take some time just to to think through this. What's God put in me? What I mean by that specifically is it may be an idea that you're not sure is from him or not sure you really want to do. Um, there have been a few times in my life where some wacky idea that I had that I had pushed away kept coming back. And it kept coming back until I said, oh, I think that's actually God. And oh, okay, now I need to decide if I'm going to say yes or push it back down again. And God has done some incredibly beautiful things in my life when I said yes to those. And uh, it doesn't mean it was easy. Some of them are, were hard, have been hard, are still hard, and they're going to keep being hard. Um, but sometimes I think that's how God is steering me where he wants me to go uh, in spite of some of the hardships. But those ideas happen in moments like right now. So take a moment, write it down, even if it's just a word or a summary or a phrase, and then we'll jump into the next chapter. So I'll give you maybe 15 more seconds or so. Okay, last moments to write those down. If you had one word, you were done a minute and a half ago. Okay. So my process for awesomeness, that, that's like I said, overselling this quite a bit. Uh, but uh, let's jump in. First of all, when you talk about um, a process and a product, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Um, I love this quote. We're called to create and use things in the physical world to move people beyond the physical. So this is for those of us who know the Lord, right? And then this other line, we are invited to feed souls. That seems pretty highfalutin and heavy, but I think that there's a tinge of 
be eternal in the work that we do, that if we are willing to reveal it, can impact people on a soul level. That's why I think it happens. And so I want us to encourage each other towards that goal because it doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's why I have a mentor. That's why I have a, a small group of people. That's why I have Facebook groups. They're pushing me towards something bigger and better. So inspiration is my first step in my process. Uh, I don't think a lot of creatives struggle with this because inspiration is everywhere. There's almost in some ways too much inspiration, meaning if you're tuning into Facebook or, or Instagram or whatever else, there's an endless array of inspiration for you to digest. I don't just mean having inspiration though. For me, um, this process, and I'm, I, you know, in terms of like organized versus creative, I lean a little bit more on the creative side of things, but I have had to organize my creativity so that I could find it again. So, you know, for me, this looks like being systematic. What are the buckets into which my inspiration is flowing? I have folders for images that I'm curating and I'm going through those folders to remove ones that I think I'm not inspired by anymore and keep the ones that are still inspirational to me. And I have maybe 10 or 15 of those folders organized by topic. So that system is where I go when I need inspiration outside of just the willy-nilly of whatever social media decides to serve me that day. This is how I control my inspiration and not just let it be whimsical and haphazard, right? I'm organizing these ideas. And then I am taking a folder and looking at if there's a confluence of certain images from a specific area, like the Eastern and Sierra, for example, and then I'm memorizing some of those or printing those, and then when I go to the Eastern Sierra, I'm kind of on the hunt for what's my version of, of this shot and this shot, right? So I have a system, even inside of a system, with just when it comes to inspiration, because you know, if you are just going through social media and, and you know, flagging this to save it for later, flagging this to save it for later, flagging this to save it for later, it most likely never comes out of your phone. So I actually take screenshots of images, I pull them to my desktop, I have them in folders, and I look at those folders frequently to resurface my passion for this, because in the day-to-day, -day, sometimes I just don't have that passion. Um, sometimes I'm so focused on other projects and other needs and, and other things that I don't remember you know, what it is that drew me to this the first time. So inspiration. And um, I want to be realistic, though, because as an idea, inspiration doesn't get most of us very far. So there are some challenges and some benefits to all of these. And, um, you know, first of all, it's easy to just get stuck looking at inspiring work and never get to your own. That's a trap that I think most of us or many of us struggle with at different times in our lives. You have to kind of push past that a little bit, right? But knowing that it's there. Knowing that it's going to be in the way that you're going to have to wrestle with it is more helpful to you than me just saying, have inspiration. The other thing is that sometimes your options and ideas become so multiplicitous that you don't know where to go. There's so many of them, but which one do you want to do? You just have to get past it, but no one can tell you which one to just tackle when you just tackle one. Uh, but knowing that that's a challenge is important. Next, comparison will cause paralysis and sometimes dissuade you from even starting. I experience this all the time. I know photographers who go to places where I go. I have seen their work. I consider their work to be, to be far superior than mine. And so sometimes I wonder, am I just tracing in the footsteps that they've already walked, and why am I doing this? Um, I'll try and give you some insights to help you get over that a little bit. Other than that, well, obviously, if you only copy others, you'll only make more of what already exists. So if you're just surfing inspiration, 
and your goal is to just go copy someone else's version of that, then you've kind of got a false start there. So that's why I said you need to consider making your own version of what you know, you've seen as an inspiration. Now, why is it great? Well, it gives you a working vernacular in your field. Oh my gosh, I could take that. Oh my gosh, I could take that. Oh my gosh, I could take that. You begin to see what is possible instead of just what you can come up with. And I think that's really important because those ideas from outsiders are what pushed me. Oh my gosh, I never considered adding depth to this a little bit here or framing it a certain way. Now I wanted to try that. That's exciting to me, right? And it can jumpstart creativity like we just discussed and then it helps you discover new things to try, right? The next one, research. Research and then research. Uh, I don't know how many landscape photographers do this. Uh, I think the best ones all do. I have had to push myself to do this because I, again, lean a little bit more creative, and this becomes a little bit more regimented and technical. Um, but I will tell you in the you know pros and cons of this that this is a step that sets your work apart from everyone else. When you are willing to put the time in before you go. So what do I mean by this? Um, you know, this involves looking at locations and, um, you know, even things like planning distances for your drive and then figuring out ahead of time what time of day, you know, is it east facing, west facing? You, you don't want to walk into a situation necessarily every time I have to figure it out in that moment. The more you can do ahead of time, the more you're helping yourself. And I'll, I'll dig into that in a second. But this is meant to aid your craft and your craftsmanship, which is why we do it. The downsides, the challenges, the frustrations, Research takes more time when starting out. You know, there's a lot of stages to this that I've had to learn, that I am still learning. And the amount of time it takes to learn like a new application or a new software is a little bit frustrating sometimes. But again, we talked about before, I'll, I'll say it again, pushing through some of those barriers is what leads you to a beautiful place on the other side of it. So, um, you know, for example, some of these prescriptions or subscriptions may actually cost some money. Uh, you have to decide, you know, am I going to make enough money to, to offset the cost of that? Is it worth it for me to invest money in this just to, to prepare myself for going? Um, how can I recoup that? Sometimes the idea of I've now invested money, I need to recoup this investment, pushes you to a new level in your craft where you're willing to put yourself out there to actually get remuneration for your work. So it's not always a bad thing, but just know the challenges going in. And then with research, simple mistakes can create really big misses. Can't tell you the number of times I planned something and showed up at the wrong day, time, season, because I just got something off. I wrote it down wrong. I looked at the wrong thing. Uh, you have to be prepared for some of that when you're investing time in something like this. And again, like I said, though, this step helps set you apart, okay? And it helps you get what you're looking for. Isn't that the goal of all of this? Is that if you have a vision for something and you're, you're investing time and money and effort to go get it, Helping you get the thing that you actually want is always a good thing, should be. This also, when you're researching, you're, you're developing a bit of your own brand in how you move through these stages, right? The way that I do this is different from the way that a photographer does this. My preferred application, the way that I use it is uniquely different. That's helping my images look consistently like me and consistently different from someone else. That's really important when you're trying to you know, showcase your art or even sell your art. How, how is it different? How is it uh, maybe better? I don't know. So if you had your inspiration and you've done your research, you need to organize this into some kind of a plan. Again, the intent is just not just to show up and hope to get something great. And uh, a plan helps keep you on point. Um, you know, where I'm, 
fortunate in this small group of people, landscape photographers that I've talked about in Fresno, there are a couple of different scientists and they love, I mean, this is a spreadsheet from one of our trips to the Eastern Sierra. And like, they fill up almost every moment with, okay, we're going to this restaurant and then we're gonna go ahead to this location. We're gonna be there at this time for this many minutes. That's fantastic for me. And we're all okay with the ebb and flow, meaning we don't need it to be literally those minutes, but that is keeping them organized so we can maximize our time and get the shot that we wanted. So I'm blessed to have someone who can help me with that. Without them, I would need to do this on my own. I could, it would take 10 times as much time. But having a plan, not just in your head, but written down, is what helps you um, survive the moment of your driving and you see something glorious on the side of the road, which is a moment we all have as landscape photographers, and you have to decide, am I gonna stop and capture the thing that's right there? It could be a guaranteed lock, or the thing I came for. And I've had success in both moments. But without a plan written down, you almost always stop. And my point is, is that I make a plan to go do a photograph, to shoot something specific, to get something that I want. I can come back to this later. And that's what I often do is, is in the moment of it, I don't have time to stop. I will note the moment and the location so I can come back. And unless there's some kind of weather or atmospheric event going that's unique to that moment, I can recreate the thing that I saw when I was driving some other day. Downsides of planning. That's really high on a creative's list, but um, making plans is not always easy, right? Uh, organizing your thoughts, trying to come up with the steps to, to get the thing that you want. That's not always easy for us to reverse engineer. That's why bringing this process to bear and making it consistent is really helpful. Uh, it can make you unwilling to respond to actual conditions. That's what I was just talking about. Like, you know, I had a plan. Some people are like, I'm gonna stick to the plan. Some people are like, oh, I made no plan. You need to know yourself a little bit of that. You need to decide the moment. Is the thing that I plan for and prep for and spend time researching the thing I'm going to get? Or is this better? Like I said, I've had it go both ways. This is just to make it clear to you that there's a moment of decision to be made. It can also take a lot of time. And some people just don't want to put the time in. And that's understandable. Um, but this is what helps you get what you're looking for. And it uh, can reduce decisions in the field. Now, I'm not talking about the decision of if I'm going to stop and try to this beautiful thing. I mean, when I show up to get a shot, if I've done the research and made a plan, I already know, you know, in some sense, where I'm gonna kind of park and where, how long the walk is gonna be, and kind of, I've got a vision of the picture I want, so I know a sense of where I need to stand to get that, and I know what time of day to show up, and I wanna show up a little bit early so that I'm not rushed, and, you know, th these are the things that a plan helps you with when you're in the moment. It also helps build confidence through successful execution. The more you do this process, the more you get more comfortable, the more you actually realize the success that you wanted through the process. Uh, it does take time and investment. So uh, this should be obvious, but sometimes just getting out and go creating it is the next step. Um, there are people who get stuck in planning and research, and, uh, and that's okay, but um, sometimes they can plan and plan and plan and plan so much they actually never go out and shoot. You don't really develop the shooting skill until you shoot. And that's the, you know, the actual in the moment, the daylight is a certain way, and you know, figuring out the shot um, is really important to the final craftsmanship that you want to produce, right? So plans can get you so far, research can get you so far, inspiration can get you so far, you have to go photograph and photograph and photograph. I will tell you that um, the images that I have taken that I love most are a very small percentage of the number of times I have gone try and get a photograph. Meaning, you know, sometimes the same location, time and time and time again, 
had to go back just to get what I wanted in that moment. Even after planning and doing research, it wasn't right. And I'll show you that in a second. But getting out the photograph takes real time and investment and money. Going out repeatedly and not getting what you want can be discouraging. I think it's important for us to just realize that this is something that you're practicing and you're practicing and you're practicing. And uh, you know, conditions and locations are always changing and different. Uh, you don't always get what you want. That can be frustrating. So you just have to stick with it. This is no different from a musical skill or a sports skill. Um, you know, I wrestled in high school and they used to tell us that because the actual moment of wrestling is there's so much going on with you will never perform on the mat a move you haven't practiced in the, in the practice room a thousand times. And that idea of having to practice something a thousand times before you're actually going to try it in a real match stuck in our heads. It's why we did the same moves over and over and over and over again. It's the same with music. Going out and photographing is your version of that for a photographer. Okay? Um, getting over perfectionism can be tough. Uh, we'll, we'll address perfectionism a little bit at the end, but just understand that going out again and again and again and again can help sometimes break you of that need to always got to be perfect the very first time. You have to almost see your skill set as in beta, and it's always being developed. Um, I don't know that we're ever there, right? So understand I'm in process, and that's okay. I'm not where I'm going to be yet, and that's okay. Some of the pros, obviously, this should be your favorite thing, right, about your craft. Go out, be in nature, or whatever it is that you're photographing, like enjoy the relationships that come from that and the time spent. Um, for me, landscape photography is my respite from the office. I sit for you know, 9, 10, 11 hours a day. So those weekend moments or those days where I get off to go landscape photography or where I'm hiking around with a stupid heavy backpack and a tripod and everything, those are my favorite moments. Those are my best moments. Um, and then this can and should be play-like. I love that Eric was doing a talk on play and art because it really is there. Um, I'll try to address that a little bit. Um, but trying new things and having fun. For perfectionists in the room, this is challenging. Really challenging because you want that picture that you've got all this work on to be perfect. And when you realize it isn't, uh, it can be devastating. I can tell you time and time again how I've gone, we plan trips, mega trips, you know, 15-hour drive to get to someplace super unique and the you know the, the perfect time of day and the perfect year and I got home and something about the picture was subpar enough for me to feel devastated because we'd invested so much time. Play can help offset that. Now it's still gonna be frustrating, but realizing that the moment photographing was the moment. Okay, the photograph that I wanted to be perfect afterwards, yes. It would have been great if that was perfect, but did I have an amazing time outside the office? Yes. What was the point for me? Um, you know, right now I'm not living off of photography. I didn't need that picture to be perfect. I wanted to be perfect because I'm a perfectionist, right? But that drive kept me from having a sense of enjoyment about just the trip that I had been on with amazing people out doing amazing things. Don't lose that. Try not to lose that. If you're wired like a perfectionist, you have to fight it at every step. The reason why I'm giving you these is to make it aware so you guys know it's in the mix. You have to deal with it. So case in point, uh, this picture on the right is one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken. And Yosemite is always beautiful. Um, but I have seen pictures from other people with my inspiration forward where there was this amazing serpentine fog that just went through the valley floor and had a life of its own. And I have 
wanted to capture Yosemite with that fog for 20 years. And so I just go, and I go up there and take a picture of like the top left, which is a beautiful picture, but it didn't have that fog that I wanted. And then, you know, I'd start doing a little bit of research and be like, okay, well, it's gonna be, you know, spring or fall because of the seasonality that's required for fog. And so now I know what season to go in. And so I might get a different picture and you know, sometimes it was snowy and sometimes it was sunny, but I ended up having to go to Yosemite 13 different times because I've gone more than that. But shot from this same view to find that fog. It wasn't until I you know, stumbled across and I'm talking about how the dew point, uh, moisture in the air needs to be within three to four degrees of the temperature in order for fog to even develop. You know, where like there was some science involved, it, uh, that I had to kind of learn before I could finally understand what was happening in nature for me to get the shot that I wanted. That's where the planning and the research came for me. But I'm trying to tell you guys, I had 13 tri trips that could have been seen as a waste that were uh, predicated upon you know, me finally getting to a point where I got something that I just really, really loved. Um, and I'm not saying these are terrible photographs. They are, but uh, no, they're not. But it took me so many investment of time and money to drive up there and you know that's a part of this gig especially for landscapes um, so telling you that up front I think is really important editing you can see some of the images from this from that other like all the different pictures that I took at that moment in that little band at the top I have probably a couple hundred photographs uh, from the hour and a half that this was all happening in front of me and you know I don't advise doing that necessarily, but I was just clicking and clicking because the fog kept changing. And I was like, I'm not gonna know until I get back to my computer to start editing, which which one is really the one that, that where something magical happened. Um, but editing is one of the places where you begin to develop your own trade craft, meaning um, the way that you edit your pictures becomes endemic to you and your art. This is where the brush strokes, if we were a painter, really begin to show up in the canvas of your photographs, okay? So um, it can get technical. The, the programs that you use to, to make you know, your edits are deep, and there are you know, hundreds of different things to tweak and edit and change, potentially, that can be daunting. Um, this is where getting help, outside help, um, getting, you know, watching videos, having uh, people, mentors speak into your life can, can speed up the learning process a little bit, but it's something you have to get through. Um, because again, when it comes out of your camera, if you saw my camera, I have a Sony. Sony's are notorious for having very kind of gray and muted raw images, which is what I'm shooting by default. It's not until I bring it into the camera and start tweaking the colors and editing it that, that what I saw comes back into the picture. That's the editing process. Again, the choices that I'm making there are defining what it looks like for me as a photographer. And like I said, some of the editing software is expensive. Uh, the complexity of the programs and vast number of the tools and options makes learning slower at the start. I now have a process through all these options. And it's not literally the same because not every picture I think is the same. But I will start by making some selections that are consistent for myself based on the type of picture I've taken as a starting point. Um, this is where a lot of people are tempted, the last bullet here on the bottom left, to speed up things, it's tempting to buy pre-made filters. There are other people who have, you know, set all these little filters in a way that you can just buy the data set up, and it's a fast way to jumpstart. So I've done that here and there, but in the end, doing that and leaving it there 
only makes your photograph look like their art. So that's why I dissuade people from investing in that as a permanent solution for yourself. I did that one time to learn what their settings were. I, I you know, it was like a 399 kind of a thing, and you've got you know 20 filters, and you could just take their filter and put it on your photograph, and it would look like their editing. And that's kind of cool, but I didn't want to leave it there. I needed to make it my own. So pros, you get to build a routine that gives you consistent results and build a branded look into your work like we just talked about. You can make an uh, averages, average images shine by learning how to edit. I can't tell you how many times uh, I have taken a photograph that was really, really kind of dull. And I'm not talking about the greatness of what comes out of my camera. I mean, even the picture was dull. And um, someone showed me just a couple tricks to bring some life to that. And that's fun because that's most like the process we just talked about with the latent image, right? Like you have this image that's in paper and no one can see it until you put it through these stages. Editing is the process to do that in a visual way. And uh, just for you guys to know, pros and cons, but editing is its own field. There are people you can pay money to who are just editors because they are so good. And um, I tell you that to say some people just find they have a love of editing. I mean, they may have gotten into photography to take pictures, and they're like, man, just the process of bringing that thing to life is what I love. No, that's the craftsmanship that I love. That's the art that I love. Taking pictures is fine. Um, you may find yourself in that niche. That's great. Again, there's a lot of craftsmanship that comes, even in the tweaking of the, you know, the pre-made filters and things that you can you play with. The, the software that you're given has all these little buttons and sliders and different things. Um, your unique combination of that can give you something beautiful. And maybe that's your craft. That's okay. The last one uh, in my process is critique. Uh, really important that our things don't exist in a vacuum. And uh, the image appears just to show that, like, you know, people commented and, and shared. That's, um, that's not really so much the point as that I was exposing my art to the world to be commented and shared. Uh, that's a tough step for some people. It doesn't feel ready yet. I just need to edit a little bit more. Uh, I've seen better versions of this. No one's going to like it. Uh, let me just keep working on it a little bit more. There's all kinds of ways we talk ourselves out of sharing things publicly. Um, I have found the most part, the photographic communities that I existed inside of Facebook, for example, they're pretty encouraging. In, in most cases, you know, you're going to get a few comments. Um, unless you ask for critique, you will almost always get a bunch of encouraging comments. That's what I found. Um, every once in a while, you'll find some person that they had a bad day that just wants to tell you uh, what could have been better about your photograph. Uh, that's okay because the whole point is critique. But you have to be willing to expose your work to other people before you get to a place. You know, and in some ways, as an artist, it's important to develop thick skin. Harkening back to my architecture days, we had a final critique every order for us. And I kid you not, I mean, we would spend probably four to six weeks constructing a model that would be reviewed for our final critique. So we're investing hundreds of hours because we're staying up all night two and three you know, nights in a row kind of thing every week to get this thing done. And it's per and you've made it perfect because you know this is going to represent a large portion of your grade. Everything is cut perfectly. It's glued perfectly. There's no excess glue. You know, it's, it's built to withstand a nuclear bomb kind of a thing because you know what's going to happen to it. So we walk in as freshmen, our very first critique, and we set all of our models out there and you're kind of loving this guys and this girls and you're just amazed and they're glorious and you have your drawing on the wall. Professors came in and did that for days. And 
and they would cut walls off of your model and say, this doesn't belong. Cut your roof off and say, this is the wrong shape. Take your drawings and march them up. And it was devastating as freshmen. And there was a point to that. It felt horrible. But they were trying to teach us the thing that we learned every quarter when we did this. This is just a version. It's not even the best version of this building. You have to get over what you think is perfection so that you can get to that next level. If you fall in love with this so much, you will be resistant to people's encouragement to your improvement. And you will stop growing. Don't. So you have to expose yourself to criticism. In that sense, having a little bit bigger swing is a good thing. And sometimes as artists, we have to be willing and able to let other people speak into our art to make it better. Hearing criticism, though, it's always hard. And that's okay. I think it's just a part of human beings. We come with our flaws and our concerns and our frustrations and our bad days and uh, our worries, and uh, we bring that into our art, and that's okay. That's what's called humanity. And you get to be human. It's also easy to not make time for this and just keep working independently and never show your work. And that's why I'm trying to encourage you in the opposite direction. You've heard me say this before, I think art ex exists in solitude, but it excels in community. Um, that's been my experience being pushed and encouraged by other people. You can connect with your audience better by seeing your work from an outside perspective. So when I share things online and I invite critique, I'm Sometimes surprised at what other people see in my work, good and bad, because they have such a different perspective of what they're seeing. And if my goal is ultimately to sell more imagery, then I really need to be listening to what other people are seeing if I want to shape something for the sales. If I'm just making this for myself, that's okay. Um, so I kind of find a middle road through that because I am making this for myself. I want to love the art, but I also want other people to love it. So I'm listening to what they think might different and take another grain of salt because some people will give you their opinion and they're not qualified to do it. You have to kind of win those other people out too. So uh, judiciously be open to other people's inputs. You can get better faster through being mentored. This can be a shortcut to your success. You'll hear me say that a couple of more times. For me, uh, it is the best advice that I can give you as a budding artist of any kind and that is to find someone more experienced invite them to speak into your work. Could be a one-time session, could be a long-term relationship. You heard me mention his name before, this is Paul Mullins. Paul's a landscape photographer, he lives in Fresno, uh, and we have been going on journeys into Yosemite and beyond for probably 15 years now. Um, he's an incredible man of God. He desires to show the world what God has made and the beauty of what God has made, and I have picked up that tone in how I describe my work. But he is a true mentor, and he is incredibly selfless in uh, how he allows me to just glom onto him and learn at his feet, so to speak. So, you know, it's not uncommon. I do have my own style. I do my own research often. But when we go on trips together and we set up, you know, Paul, who's been doing this for, I kid you not, you know, 45, 50 years, he can just walk into a scene and be like, yep, that's the scene. You know, and I'm still like, you know, like doing the kind of research thing a little bit, trying to figure out what I want. And, you know, ultimately I'll walk over to Paul and, yep, that's the scene. And I'll probably set up right next to him. And then, you know, I'll get out my lens and I'll take a couple pictures. And, Paul, what are you, what are you, what are you studying? Oh, you have a different lens. Uh, 
let me get that lens and I'll put hit that same lens on. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Okay, so what do you, you know, and he, he never balks at that. Um, I'm so appreciative of the time that he has invested in me because it has helped me develop who I am today. And I would not be where I am today in terms of my craftsmanship and even my love for photography without Paul's investment. Um, critical, absolutely critical. So uh, I want you to be thinking a little bit about this. When we talk about this process, um, is there a stage, is there a step that is a barrier for your work? Uh, th again, this is my process. And this is a process that I've developed over you know, 20 years of taking pictures. Your process may be different. It may have extra steps. It may leave one of these out, I don't know. But if there is a step or a stage here that is a barrier for you, what is it? Just write it down. And then to help you as a chapter summary, I wanted to ask the question, but these are the possibilities when it comes to the steps that I, I take. So again, this is a pause moment. Uh, take a few minutes or let's say a minute or two, but just you know, write down. What, what is the, the step or the stage or the process that I struggle with the most? Struggle could be I don't do it. Struggle could be I've never done it. I don't know how to do it. Struggle could be I'm not wired that way and I don't feel like I do it well. Any of those are simple answers, but uh, for me, that becomes a thing I begin to purposely work on, knowing that I'm weaker in that area, so that I can get better and, and elevate my ultimate craft. The last thing that's worth mentioning for me, sometimes on the same picture, meaning you saw those different pictures for Yosemite, I can get through this whole process on a picture, and then I have to start over. Meaning, I need to go back and maybe find some more inspiration or maybe do a little bit more research, like I told you about, to figure out that whole fog thing, and then develop a different plan for a next trip. I do this process for every outing. Every time I go out, I'm taking all of the, I'm not posting yet, but I will afterwards. But for every trip I take, I'm walking through all of these steps. This is my process. Five key photography concepts. Um, you guys all probably know these. If you study photography, you'll find them in every photography book. You'll find them on seminars online. You'll find them on YouTube channels. Uh, I'm gonna show you the ones that I use the most and uh, the ones that have developed my craft the most as a landscape photographer. And I want you to be thinking about which one you wanna try next. Or if I try, I don't mean like, I've already done this, Josh. I know it's try in a new way. Try in a different setting, try with a different type of photography. Whatever that means for you, just intentionalize picking one of these to play with the next time you go out. That's all I'm saying. Framing. Surrounding your subject is a way of directing the consumer's eye. So most of these tactics involve, when you're taking a picture, you need to pick a subject. Okay, so it's really easy when you're doing portraiture. You, the subject is the person I'm taking a picture of. You have decisions to make in landscapes. What is the subject? Once you know the thing that you're taking a picture of, you may not even know when you walk up, meaning you may walk up to the edge of the lake today, and the lake was what you thought was going to be your subject. And then a duck or a moon floats by, and the duck becomes the subject, and now the lake is the environment around it. Okay? So picking your subject is the first step, but how you frame it will affect how the viewers see it, right? 
So there's all kinds of ways you can frame something by putting it above it, below it, to either side. You're steering the person's view towards the subject. That's the goal of framing it in this way. Find interesting ways to surround your subject. These are all different pictures that the subject has been framed. This is the only slide where I included picture or work that was not my own, because I thought some of my friends' work uh, did a better job of illustrating it. So the, the waterfalls here, Paul Mullins has completely surrounded it in this verdant green canopy of forests. And so your eye you know, goes to the waterfall. Uh, another person did the same thing. They framed this waterfall on the left and the right and the bottom and even a little bit on the top. Um, Yosemite Falls here, this is one of mine. I, I don't know that I love this picture, but what I loved was in the moment of standing there, I was playing. I don't normally put branches in the top of my pictures, but I was like, let's just try it. And I think this is a little bit busy, um, but it's an example of me playing, so I wanted to show it. It's also an example of framing it on the top, which is unusual for me. Uh, this, they literally framed it with this old hut and the, the lake that was seen through the window. Uh, Yosemite, you know, I've framed Half Dome with, you know, the, the trees on the left and the right. And here I've done the same thing, but with this kind of a, the mountains is a little bit of a V. So I'm always at play with framing. And I will almost always take pictures with and without because it's not really until I get at home and they have a strong sense of what the real picture was that I know which one I'm going to shoot. That's, um, that's something that I'm working on. Composition in the field is one of my weaknesses. And so what happens is that weakness creates more pictures that I have to take and then more editing at home. So that weakness kind of perpetuates itself through my whole process. Um, that's what I'm working on. So as another example, um, this is half dome and reflection, um, unframed, meaning it's just, it's just the picture's there. And then I noticed that the, the edge of you know, this river had this kind of cool curve to it that just nicely kind of framed the reflection of half dome. And I just like the way that that felt. Um, I like this picture better because it, I feel like there's more constraint. Like this is just a little bit in your face. And, and if you love this one better, that's fine. I'm okay with that. It's beautiful. Um, I gravitate more towards this. And there are other topics we're going to cover next that will kind of make that more clear to you maybe why. Um, but that's framing. Leading lines. Has everyone here heard of what leading lines are in photography? You guys familiar with this a little bit? So you're looking for things in your picture that are creating lines that are steering towards the subject, right? Um, Again, these are not all mandates. These are options. These are creative opportunities for you in the field. So obviously, it's, you know, I mean, when you're on a street, the street lines are leading lines, right? That's a really easy one. Um, this path has some really nice you know, leading lines leading you into this kind of darker area in the picture. Again, the point of using these versus not is you're steering the user's eye towards your subject. You're using what's there to guide them to see the thing that you want them to see. And, and that's more pleasing to the eye to do it that way. You're looking for elements to guide and direct viewer focus. So here's an example from some pictures that I've taken. I'm gonna show you where the leading lines are, but just look at these for a second. Can you imagine, can you see them in the pictures? The, 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 the purposeful leading lines that I've crafted to lead your eye towards the subject? Okay, here they are. So I'm using mountains, I'm using horizon lines on both of these to steer you towards the subjects. 
I'm using the dock. I'm using the edges of the ground over here to steer you towards, for me, it was the sun and the mist hitting. That, that was the subject for me in this picture. And here's the shadows. Using this, this tree to block the sun and create these amazing shadows that just kind of cascaded out towards my eye. And so all these things are pushing you towards the subject in these pictures. I have a lot of fun with these lines. I love it. But that's why I'm showing these. Next, the rule of thirds. Um, this is, gets a little bit scientific, which I'm not going to go there. But the idea that dividing up space in your picture can create a more, a sometimes more pleasing arrangement for the eye that our eyes naturally see um, imbalance as more artistic than balance. So what am I talking about here? Um, first of all, the, the, the principle that we're talking about, the rule of thirds, is um, it's that there are foundations of, of, there are foundational principles of photography that suggest that you can divide your picture into thirds and that placing elements on one of those key points uh, is a more pleasing arrangement to our eyes as humans. So let, let, let me dig into this a little bit more. This is not rule of thirds. This is balanced. This is everything centered, okay? And it's static, and it's focused, and it's solid. It can be pointed. There's nothing wrong with this. There, these are tools that you pull out of your creative tool belt for different usefulness, for different applications, okay? So rule of thirds is just another tool. Balanced is okay, and I'm going to show you some examples of that. Uh, but when we're talking about using the rule of thirds, this is what we're talking about. Dividing the picture into thirds, top to bottom, and putting something at one of these points makes the picture feel more dynamic, engaging, compelling. It gives a sense of movement sometimes, of directionality in your image. If Jeff Lowe were here, he would start to talk about pi and the Fibonacci sequence and how somehow we all feel that. I'm not going to talk about that today. You can talk to Jeff about that. These are examples of mine where I have played with the rule of thirds. And you can see here, this tree is on a third. This mountain is on a third. These rocks are on the bottom third. But this rock is dead center. This mountain is dead center. And this tree is dead center. I don't know that there, there's a better or a right or a wrong. Again, but these are things that I'm playing with in my craftsmanship. So when I go to photograph this tree, I'm taking this tree and I'm putting it in the center, I'm putting it in the left, I'm putting it in the right, I'm putting it in the top, the way that I frame it, I'm playing with all these things. Um, and sometimes when I'm in the field, I can feel what's right. I'm getting better at that composition of the field. A lot of times for me, it's not until I get at home and I fill my screen with it and I step back, I don't want to fall down, and I kind of just look like, oh no, that's, I need to either recrop it or I need a different picture that I took where it's placed in a different area. For me, that editing process at home is really important to kind of finding the best work that I've done because composition is something I struggle with in the field. But these are examples of using the rule of thirds and then, again, not depending on what you're trying to do with your subject. When I want the subject to be the focus and the main thing and the solid thing, then I put it dead center and I put it in the middle. When I want it to be a little bit creative and have some motion and movement and some, you know, some, some life to it, that's where I'll put it off to the side um, and, and give it some room. And that's what that does, basically, is it gives room on one side for it to breathe in a way that looks pleasing to our eye. Okay, for mid and background and creating depths in our pictures. You guys probably all know about this, uh, but, but this is something that I am uh, beginning to push myself into my craft. Uh, I will tell you, when I started out with photography, I would see a beautiful thing in nature that I wanted to photograph, and I would photograph it. 
and I was focused on my aperture and my shutter speed and I get it sharp and great. And I would bring it home and it was a beautiful thing, but it sometimes just felt like it didn't have the life that I wanted to capture in the moment. And people began to encourage me to see that I had focused so much on one thing at one plane far away that I was missing the life that was created in the depth of things in front of and behind that thing. Now, what I was concerned about was it not being cluttered. I didn't want to necessarily include things to make it feel like there's too much going on. So I thought that my restraint was a good thing. There are all different types of pictures in photography. You may find you just love filling the frame with the thing that you love and that's okay. I have a lot of pictures like that. But I'm beginning to push myself in my own craft to introduce elements that don't take away from the subject more to the point, what I'm trying to do is, is create interest so that I'm leading your eye to the subject. There's almost a journey that's being built, right? Um, and, and in the sense of that, there's a sense of discovery. Yeah, because if you don't know this, our eyes don't just see the picture. The way that we look at these, we look through them. We're, we're, our eyes are catching little, little iconic elements or moments inside of them. We assess the whole picture in parts. So it's important for us as photographers then, well, how does that work? Does it start at the bottom? Does it start at the top? Where a person's eye enters the page is dictated by the elements you put in that and around it. There's a whole science to this, but the bottom line is for us, just introducing elements of different depths can begin to create a journey for the, the viewer's eye through and into a picture to the subject you want them to see. That's why we consider this. So here's an example on the Eastern Sierras. Again, this is me just filling the frame with the thing I wanted to take a picture of, but it's all the same depth. And in a sense, it's a little bit flat because it's all so far away and it's all that same you know, depth. But, and I'm not saying this is a better photograph, but when you introduce something, you know, I'm using this, this uh, wood, you know, this abandoned wood here to frame the reflection of that peak. And what I like was this, the similarity of that curve, right? That, the, that, that wood. Now, if you were to see this piece of wood, it was kind of like squiggly. It wasn't just a curve. I had to kind of, you know, fight to find that right angle and get up and down. And, and, and I had to find the place where the curve of the wood matched the curve of the reflection. It was not just as simple as walking up and taking a picture. That's, that's a job. But that's also the joy when you find those little elements in nature that you wouldn't think should overlap or create you know, similar symmetry, and they do. So for me, this, this picture has way more life to it, way more interest than, than that does. Even though that's beautiful, right? That's amazing, but that's more fun for me. These are examples of pictures uh, that where I've purposely included foregrounds. Again, for the sake of, I'm using it to uh, create an entry point for your eye and lead you toward to a subject. I'm using it to frame the subject. Uh, sometimes I'm creating leading lines. Uh, you know, so whether it's the, the little puffs of uh, powdery snow in Yosemite or these trees, I use these trees as contrasts. Uh, the, the clouds were producing shadows that were coming in and out of the floor. So I waited for a moment where the area right behind these trees was in shadow and they were in light because I wanted that kind of depth. Uh, and the interest of that, because when these trees were not in light, they almost disappeared against the canopy. They were so the same color, you couldn't see them. So at that point, if they're the same, 
then you almost zoom past them because there's no point to have them there, right? If, if they're not going to create some depth or contrast or interest and they're just more of the sameness, then I would zoom past, I would get over them and zoom past them to make my picture look something else. But I like this. And then using this amazing brush to kind of lead your eye into the boot arch, the, this nice little canopy of uh, dusting of snow in the foreground before you get to the mountains in the distance. I mean, again, these are things I love playing with. And I will take pictures with and without them when I'm there and wait until I get home to figure out what, which one I like best. That's sometimes tough too. Tonal values. Um, this is the one that Paul Mullins taught me that has changed my work maybe the most. And um, it's a little bit technical, but we'll get through it together. Hang with me. What you're looking for is the light to dark tonality in your image, okay? The premise here is based on the old masters of painting. And they intentionally would make the subject not always light. That's not what I'm saying. The area of smallest concentration in the work is the subject, okay? So if you have an all-light painting, the darkest part of that is the smallest, darkest part is the subject, right? Because you always have a subject on a frame. You always have a subject in a field, okay? So your subject is the smallest thing. So for these, in most cases, they're using the lightest part in an overly dark environment to be the subject. But it's the smallest, and that's that's how you're assessing what the subject is. You can't have a subject that's like the whole thing because there's nothing to contrast it with. So you know the subject is this glorious sky, you know, hitting the water and the waterfall. The subject is Christ; he's the most illuminated in this picture. Again, the subject is the sky and the waterfall. The subject is this person illuminated in this scene. The subject is. The sky and the light coming down this valley and hitting the water. The subject is the waterfall here in the sky. Using the light and dark to, to, to create a subject from the field that you're seeing is one of these things. So here's a picture of mine from Yosemite. The subject here for me is this tree lit up by the evening golden golden light in the fall. And so what I did was, because a lot of these trees are bright, uh, you know, if you look here, this is this is my kind of tonal map for this image, right? Light to dark. The brightest area, the smallest, brightest area is my subject. It's surrounded by a, kind of another light wash. That's okay. I actually went in and darkened down some of the color over here so that my subject would stand apart. So instead of just taking one area and brightening it, I actually did that. But then I went to the areas around it and I darkened them down so that there was more contrast in light and dark. You can see me using that, playing with that in a number of different ways. The waterfall is the lightest. This, this golden aspen tree at the back is the lightest. This amazing aspen tree is lit up by the evening light. The, the light on the mountaintop here and in the water here, the light in the sky, that's all ways where I'm playing with the tonality of my images to bring out the subject by just using light and dark contrast, okay? The smallest area of biggest contrast is what your subject is. This one, I want to just kind of briefly pause on. So this is also Yosemite. It's also from that same day that you saw my other picture. The honest truth is this picture was all this same kind of muted, uh, you know, blue-gray. It was all the same tonality because it was totally overcast in this moment. What I did was I went in and I selected this mountain because that was my subject with Bridal Veil, and I lightened it, and I whitened the snow. 
because I wanted there to be just a little bit of separation and contrast because this was my subject. It's very subtle in this picture. Um, it, you would see it probably better in the actual printed version because it's just a different type of medium. But it's, it's, you can just, it feels like it's kind of stood off from the rest of the field because it's just a little bit brighter than everything else. That's totally intentional. Uh, again, you've already seen this slide, but it's still a great example of where the subject, I mean, these are clear, right? It's super clear. You wouldn't necessarily know it here. So this field of yellow flowers was stark and beautiful. And actually, when I went up to this you know, scene with my camera, I thought that was the subject. I, I, it was the bright yellow against the background of this, this mountain in shadow. But I came to realize that this stood apart differently in a way that I liked better. It was more pleasing to me. So what I did was I went into all these yellows and I brought them down and I muted them. I took out the color saturation so that they didn't stand, because I didn't want them, this, competing with this. I wanted this subject to be a part. So that's how I have used uh, light and dark as a way of, you know, highlighting my subject and that tonality is the way that we do that. So, quick pause, and then we're gonna just jump into a couple more slides and we're done, we're almost there. When it comes to introducing, you know, our art as worship, um, you'll hear other people speak on this this weekend, I'm excited to kind of hear everyone's vision or, or unique view of this point. Um, I have a couple ways that I've intentionally done that that I wanna share with you. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of applicable when you're looking at what God has created. It's maybe a little bit easier for landscape photographers. There's always a challenge for us, though, to, to kind of want to say, like, look what I've made. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of jump you have to make in terms of, like, look what God made. And begin to refer people to him as opposed to the craftsmanship you put in this. Because this has taken time and effort, and you want to showcase that. Um, but everywhere else you look, everyone's talking about them and them and them and them. I just don't know that that's our best story for leaders. And so, um, you know, we all want to make sure that showing spirit in our art um, is not just a veneer or a wrapper. That it, it really is the heart and soul of our craftsmanship. The first one is just shine bright, and art is our voice. Um, what I have realized over time is that my art has become a worship performance and um, that ultimately God is my primary audience, and that I'm doing this to showcase him. And I, it's not overt. I don't have a God story in every one of my posts. Um, but I will sprinkle in just enough, and this is what I was referencing before, is that you know, over time I've developed in my own craftsmanship this ability of, instead of seeing what I made and the joy of showcasing that, that I'm really kind of stepping back and saying, you know, see what God made and celebrate him, his love, his creativity and using my landscape images to talk about how I feel his love because he gave me, he made this amazing thing for me to enjoy. Just the fact that we can appreciate this is in a lot of ways evidence of God's existence to me. Uh, fun quote for us, it is the artist's world to remind us that beauty is still around and this, we give the world slivers of hope. It's, it's kind of a jump maybe sometimes to think of yourself as an artist that gives the world slivers of hope. But I think transition your own thinking to realize that you have that opportunity. Even if you're just capturing a beautiful thing that God's made, that if there's a story that comes with that, if how you think about God because of that image, that becomes, it's not the picture necessarily that's a sliver of hope. What are you using the picture to say? It's your story. It's your testimony. It's what God's doing for you. That's the sliver of hope that we get to talk about. 
that the picture introduced, to get the craftsmanship that you put into your work, that is the first line in a conversation that can be about God. So the second one is um, something that God taught me a number of years ago that has helped me defeat perfectionism and, and some of the things that be said me, because I am a perfectionist. I'm the kind of person who would work it and work it and work it and work it and work it. And, and almost to the point where there's never a sense of rest. King David wrote in Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. And what I realized after uh, doing this for so long is that if God wants us to explode and be amazing, if God wants us to stay small and personally connected, um, that he is the judge and the steerer of my future. He is my true shepherd in that sense. And that I can find rest and peace and begin to play when I know that the responsibility is his, not mine. That, that what is the result? I cannot control the result of this. So if I leave the result to God, it frees me to just do the thing that feels right in the moment when I'm, when I'm creating crafts and art and, and the craftsmanship. And I can leave everything else behind. This is not something you get like that. This is something that I'm still working at all the time. But the thing is, you know, um, only faith gives you the ability to truly rest and trust in Christ. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, it's not until you really truly believe God is in charge of this he will take and use your craftsmanship and your skill with uh, when and how he wants. It's not until that moment of faith that shows up that you're able to let go of the need to worry about the little things, in my experience. Um, knowing that your future is held by him, it's not all on your shoulders and your effort. That is the first step to beginning to play again and just enjoying it. Um, he is able to fill, fulfill his goals for your life and your life and your success. Here's an example from my personal career. This is my Instagram page. These are a couple posts that I've done just recently. Uh, they're hard to read, but it's like 146, 975, 893, 262. That, that's my normal views for a post on Instagram, and that's fine. It's not great, it's terrible, it's just that's what it is. Um, months and months and months ago, my wife Stephanie and I took a trip and this was really when I was just starting with Instagram, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I was just trying to copy what other people were doing, and uh, we were in an extraordinary place, I will tell you that. But um, can you guys see that number? I'm used to 146. This is 145,000 views, and I did nothing extraordinary in this. I, I don't, I mean, it's, I was posting all over the place, and yes, I was getting elevated posts, 1,000, 1,200, 2,000, but I didn't do anything that warranted 145,000 views. For me, that is atmospheric. But in the moment, God reminded me, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what your effort or your you know, diligence necessarily are. I'm not dependent upon those things to do something incredible with you. That's where our heart comes back into the heart. And just being open to him, focused on him, looking to him, and realizing our times, good, bad, whatever that is God, that God has for us. Because this was a moment, I believe, in this psalm where David was waiting for God to fulfill the promise that he would become king. His times were in God's hands. We have to hold that tight. I, um, I love this quote. God gave me this years and years ago, and it has stood me 
the test of time, but I, I find that so often in what we pray for, what we ask God for, for our work and our craft, we will keep trying to invite him into the emptiness of our lives. God, fix this. God, help me with this. God, please, just this one thing for me, maybe. Instead of letting him bring us into the fullness of his life. This is our opportunity when we give him our faith and our trust. Is that he gets to take us someplace we otherwise might not go. I also think when it comes to our art and our craftsmanship and introducing faith that undergirds the whole thing, that um, Sabbath and rest is essential for our work and our craftsmanship. That um, to say it even differently, that maybe Sabbath has to come first to prepare us to do the work that needs to be done. It's not the reward or the response afterwards. And I have a, a, a great quote that I love that I'm going to show you in the next slide that says this, but. I think in a lot of ways, it's only that trust and that faith in God that lets us rest enough to be filled in a Sabbath moment. So it seems antithetical that not working might get you where you need to go for your work, but uh, we have found this in our professional career, in my passion career with photography, that um, God is able to do more than I am, and sometimes my sitting down introduces the opportunity for him to move. When I'm frantic and flailing and working and working and working, there's no room for him in that moment in my head, in my life, in my art. But when I sit down and I rest and I connect with him, he does things I wouldn't do that are glorious and better most often. It just takes me to recognize that. So I want you to see, I mean, this is just a brief slide in your presentation, but the opportunity for you to rest and have Sabbath is essential to sometimes your craft. It feels antithetical, but it's true. This is just a quote that says what I've already said before, but rest is not the reward for the work that we have done. It's the foundation upon which all meaningful work is built. Okay, And then also, embracing the Sabbath is an acknowledgement that our work is not determined by our productivity. Because when we're resting in God and we're not working, and we're trusting him to make it fruitful, think of a farmer having to wait patiently for fruit to come. You can't do anything in that moment. This is when God shows up. So wrap up and takeaways. Uh, I think for me, oops, hang on. I just want you, you know, in a talk like this, especially at this duration of time, you're not going to get everything. Now, I am going to make available this slide deck so that you guys can have this long term. I'll give uh, Emily the PDF of this so that you guys can have access to that afterwards. But um, in a talk like this, you know, statistics show that people really only hold on to two or three things. So unburden yourself from everything. You're going to get all this later. And I want you just to write down if you're journaling or just in your own thoughts. What are the two or three things that, that from today can help you in your photography, in your, your life as a creative, uh, your, your walk with God even uh, for these last couple slides. Like, is there anything that God has been speaking to you just in the last hour and a half that we've had that you just need to pause and write down? This is that moment. And then I will end with just saying thank you guys for coming to my talk. And um, you can follow me uh, on social media. I'm on Facebook and, and Instagram. And uh, I do have a website where I'm selling these things. And I also uh, took a big step of leap of faith this year, and I printed a calendar for the first time. So I have some calendars over here for you guys if you would like to buy them. There's one that's open for you to flip through, and uh, those are $35 each. And uh, that's it. So thank you.
you so much for joining the workshop today. I hope you're blessed. Yosemite, and and that uh, well, they're both Yosemite. Are you talking about this? Okay, I'll keep going back, and you tell me when to stop. Oh, I haven't done no okay. yet. Okay. So this is, uh, it's outside of Mammoth, California. It's called the Hot Creek Geological Site. Okay. Um, uh, there, I believe, <laughs> it made it to the final cut, but I don't know if it made it in the final product. So I was just there last week, and I have a whole new version of this photograph uh, without snow. I've been told by other more experienced landscape photographers, winter scenes don't sell. So, you know, it's like, I mean, January, February, you have to have a picture of your calendar with snow, right? Um, so anyway, it's, it's one of those funny things where it's like, I'm still kind of finding, you know, the furniture with my shins on this. But, um, no, I, that's one of my favorite photographs. Um, and I like it because of the control of light. So in winter, this scene is a little bit darker than the one I just photographed last week, where if there's brighter colors, there's color everywhere. Like, um, I'll post that soon, but... Uh, I like this because of the control, and uh, and because the relationship between the mountain and the water is so much vi more vibrant because there's less light everywhere. When you fill the valley with light, suddenly it's like, where does your eye go? Yeah, Hot Creek Geological Site outside of Mammoth. Yeah, yeah.